WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. The coup d'etat in Wilmington, North Carolina successfully exterminated any black power structure. The professional class, duly elected officials, and black citizens were driven out of town or murdered. The white supremacist cabal was back in power. It was November 1898. Seven years later, just off the coast of Southport, three people were hauled ashore and thrown into the tiny Brunswick County Jail. Accused of mutiny and murder, officials quickly moved them to Wilmington to await trial. The sensational story begins when officers from a neighboring ship climb aboard to investigate a cargo ship's distress signal. They find bloodied decks, one crew member tied up, one crew member dead, and reports that all four of the ship's officers had been murdered and tossed overboard. The three men still alive were black. The four dead officers were white. Would it be possible for the accused to get a fair trial in Wilmington, North Carolina, in 1905? Even though the case grabbed national headlines more than a century ago, it's essentially been lost to history since, until now. North Carolina native and former criminal defense attorney Charles Manley Oldham has written a book, Ship of Blood, Mutiny and Slaughter Aboard the Harry A. Burwind and the Quest for Justice. The book is published by Beach Glass Books, and the author joins me now. Charles Oldham, welcome to Coastline. Well, thank you for having me. How did you first hear about this case of the sailors in the Harry A. Burwind? I first heard about the case purely by, by accident. Uh, this is the uh, second book that I've written, uh, second true crime book that I've written related to uh, North Carolina history. And it was about, uh, it was just a few years ago when I was looking around for a, a second topic. I knew I wanted to write a second book, but I wasn't sure exactly what direction I wanted to go in. And it was around that time I just purely by chance, I came across a historical review article that was written back in 2014 or so about this particular case. And it was a standard article, about 20 pages long, just summarizing the the basic facts of the case. But when I read that article, I was just amazed that I had never heard of this case before. I couldn't believe that there had never been a full-length, fully documented account of the case written previously. And this was just a uh, serendipitous encounter on my part because I was looking for a second book to write, and I thought, well, this is the one I need to write. And why do you think that is? Why hasn't, why did this thing happen? It was sensational at the time, grabbing headlines around the country, and yet it then just disappeared. Why? Well, of course, it's, um, we know that the case happened in 1905, and we know, generally speaking, you know, the history of race relations here in, in Wilmington. It, it's, only, it's only been within the past 20 or 25 years that historians have really started to look in detail about the things that happened in 1898. And we've started to reckon with the history of the insurrection and all the, uh, the aftermath of that. And I think um, this particular case, uh, even though the results of it were really, really sensational and very, very unpredictable, it's just that um, 
it was so fraught with, uh, with racial issues and racial tension that things like that tended to just be shoved aside for a long time, which is unfortunate. Now, in your book, you, you address some of the newspaper accounts mm-hmm. of the trial at the time, mm-hmm. and you suggest that they might not be fully accurate. <gasps> what? A newspaper account not being fully accurate? I mean, it's, you know, I'm being goofy here, but what what was the flavor of kind of the journalistic principle at the time? Well, and... It's not. It's not just a Wilmington thing, by by any means. Uh, the newspapers at the time were, I mean, all throughout the South and to a lesser extent nationwide. Uh, most of them were obviously published and written by white people, and here in Wilmington, of course, that was that was certainly the case. Uh, the the coverage of the of the uh, the trial when it started in 1905 was uh, it started just the way that you would predict it, um, since these the trial involved three black defendants facing murder charges for killing four white men. As you would imagine, the assumption from the very beginning was guilty on all counts. Very likely they're going to go to trial and then there's going to be a quick verdict and a quick death sentence. But it's really surprising that that is, that is not what happened. And I was really s- stunned in a way to see the way that um, – even the press here in Wilmington, the newspapers, even some of the newspapers who seemingly had been in favor of the white supremacy movement and had pushed the insurrection just a few years before, they started to listen to the evidence against these these three guys. And they started to actually conclude that, you know, all three of them probably are not guilty. There's more to the story than we assumed at first. And they, they went with that. One of the things I found striking about this is that even some of the architects of the 1898 coup d'etat actually became involved in making a case for the innocence of these of uh, two of the three accused men. But before we get into who those uh, some of those people were, let's let's look at Southport, was it very different from Wilmington at the time? I mean, a lot of people who are listening to this today will know Southport as a kind of touristy place where affluent retirees uh, tend to live. But what was it like in 1905? Well, Southport back then was a very, it was much smaller, of course, and it was essentially just a fishing and uh, trading village. Um, a lot of the houses, you know, when you walk the uh, the historic streets down in Southport, a lot of those houses are still there, but that's about all there was back then. And there were the, the fishing docks and the shipping docks. And there was the, the old Brunswick County Jail, which had been built just a couple of years before. Today it's a historic museum. But that's, uh, that's about all it was at the time. It was a basically a, a ramshackle fishing village, as you might might imagine. And these guys, when they were hauled onto shore, Southport, they were tossed first into the Brunswick County Jail. What were, there were some official concerns about that. Well, that's true. And uh, the reason they were brought into uh, Southport was because it ha- just happened to be the nearest point to, to land to where the, where the ship was intercepted offshore. And when these three, these three surviving sailors were brought ashore, there were very serious concerns about whether they, about their safety and whether they could um, actually be brought to trial without being lynched first. 
that was something that was happening a lot at the time. It was, yes. And not just in Southport, but across the South. Yes. And so there was another crew member uh, who also was a person of color. He was killed. Yes. He was uh, was shot dead in the, the altercation that happened on board the ship. And unlike the uh, the four officers, his body actually was not tossed overboard. Uh, his body was uh, still found on the on the deck of the ship, and he was he was buried there in Southport afterward. And where where do we think he was buried? As far as we know, he's uh, buried in a uh, historic cemetery. Uh, it's just around the corner from the from the jail in Southport. It's uh, it was well known at the time as the the local African American cemetery. But he, uh, he does not have a marked grave, as you might imagine. And now, in the book, you include a pretty detailed accounting of the 1898 coup, which had taken place seven years before the mutiny and murders ab- aboard the Harry A. Berwyn. And I guess part of the reason that you're going into such detail about the coup is it paints a, a pretty important picture of the white supremacist conditions facing these men. And we said just a few moments ago that some of the same people who were the architects of this coup and massacre got involved to represent these men as attorneys. Who were some of these people involved in both? Well, the most prominent one actually was uh, George Roundtree, who was known as Probably the most most influential and most learned attorney in Wilmington at the time. He was a uh, Harvard grad. His uh, grandfather actually had been the Attorney General of the Confederate States. George during, Davis. Yes, during the during the Civil War, and Mr. Roundtree, in fact, had been known as one of the one of the ringleaders of the uh, 1898 insurrection. I, I really give a lot of credit to this to the historians who have come before me who have written in de- in detail about. Who all did what in that insurrection? Uh, there's uh, David Zaselski and Tim Tyson, David Zacchino, of course, who recently wrote to Wilmington's Live, which is the best account of it yet. And I, uh, I thank him because he uh, he was willing to review my book beforehand, and he provided a review quote to go along with it. So uh, I'm very gratified by that. But um, anyway, it was George Roundtree. Let's also mention Philip Gerard. Yes, UNCW's Philip Gerard, who oh, yes. was, I think, uh, one of the first people in the later 20th century to bravely chronicle what happened in a work of historical fiction for oh, which he almost lost tenure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think he also uh, offered a blurb for your book. Yes, he did, which I appreciate very much. Yeah. But um, it was uh, George Roundtree who, even though he was one of the ringleaders of the insurrection and later wrote the North Carolina state statute, which essentially disenfranchised African-American voters entirely. But after he did all that, he later came on board and represented two of these sailors and eventually took their case to the United States Supreme Court, defending them. And I mean, that really is astounding when you think about it. But uh, you might think of it in a way he was doing his, his professional duty. He was helping out two men who needed legal defense which was remarkable. Um, One of the other attorneys was uh, William Bellamy, as in the Bellamy Mansion. And we're going to hear more about who some of these common players were in just a moment. You're listening to Coastline. Author Charles Oldham is with us today. His book, Ship of Blood. Still ahead, we'll explore the value of 
as un, as yet unreported stories from decades or even centuries ago. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. In 1905, two trials taking place in Wilmington, North Carolina, grabbed headlines. Three black sailors were charged with the murders of four white officers from the Harry A. Berwyn, a cargo ship. Just seven years after the 1898 massacre, how could they possibly get a fair trial? Charles Oldham has written a book about the case, Ship of Blood, Mutiny and Slaughter Aboard the Harry A. Berwyn, and The Quest for Justice, published by Beach Glass Books. So just before we went to break, you were explaining some of the main players in this case, the in the Sailors case, who were also important architects of the white supremacist campaign that led up to the 1898 coup d'etat and, and massacre in Wilmington. Uh, and you talked a little bit about George Roundtree. There were some other important figures in this as well who had a hand in both. Well, I have to mention the most uh, the most prominent one, of course. Uh, this is a name that's probably well known to a lot of folks. Alfred Moore Waddell, who is really notorious these days as probably the the primary instigator of the insurrection, and he he was the one who gave the uh, the infamous speech uptown about uh, gathering the troops and uh, taking over the city, and the, of course the the worst. Quote from it was when he uh, he promised that uh, they were going to take over the city government and overthrow the biracial government, even if they had to choke the Cape Fear River with Negro corpses and so forth. I hate even even repeating that these days, but that's what he said at the time. And he later became the the uh, mayor of Wilmington after he and his troops took control of the city, and that was in 1898. But in 1905, amazingly enough. That same Alfred Moore Waddell, when he was the mayor of Wilmington, he signed the clemency petition for two of these black sailors. This clemency petition that was taken to President Theodore Roosevelt asking for their death sentences to be to be commuted to life imprisonment. So he actually put his name on the paper asking for mercy for these two these two black men. And I had to tell you when I came across that in the National Archives, I was really astounded by that. James Sprunt is another person who was involved in both. Tell us about his role. Well, James Sprunt, of course, a very well-known uh, business leader here in Wilmington at the time, and his name is on plenty of uh, civic organizations even today. But um, in addition to being probably the wealthiest man in town, he, and this is really, really critical, it turned out that he was the known as the British consul in Wilmington at the time. He was the representative of the British government because uh, Mr. Sprott himself, he was from Scotland originally. And this is also just a, a happy coincidence, but uh, two of these guys who were put on trial, they were from the Caribbean islands, and so they technically were British subjects at the time. And so Mr. Sprott, realizing that they probably were innocent, he used his influence with the British embassy at the time to essentially lobby the White House to obtain presidential clemency for them. Okay, so I'm going to come back later and ask you why 
why you think these men would have lobbied on behalf of these now convicted murderers. But let's let's go back in time a little bit. They were these three defendants were split into two different trials. Yes. Two were being tried together and then one guy was being tried by himself. That's true. Why was that? Because they were telling different stories. Uh, two of them, uh, and their names were uh, Robert Sawyer and Arthur Adams, were given one account of the murders. They claimed that all of the killing was done by the third defendant, and his name was Henry Strott. Um, Adams and Sawyer claimed that Henry Strott smuggled some guns on board, and he one day decided that he was going to go rogue and he was going to start a shooting spree. He, uh, one by one, hunted down the four white officers on board and shot them to death. And Adams and Sawyer claimed that this was an entirely a surprise to them. And they claimed that Scott held them under the gun and threatened to kill them as well if they didn't cooperate and so forth. So it was uh, two against one as far as the stories were concerned. Uh, Henry Scott, as you might imagine, flipped the script on them, and he claimed that Adams, Adams and Sawyer, as well as the the third dead sailor, had conspired together to kill the officers. And it, they were just mirror images, the stories. But uh, because they were telling different stories, the two of them were tried together, and the other was tried separately. And it's interesting, too, the way you describe the public perception of these men and their testimony. It was very different. Like the the two Sawyer and Adams, the two who were tried together and whose stories matched, seemed to be pretty credible. That's that's the way people saw it. Um, Scott was put on trial first, and so Adams and Sawyer were the two primary prosecution witnesses against him. And they took the stand, and a lot of people who attended the trials, not just the press, but just regular regular folks here in town, listened to them and said, well, you know, these two guys, they seem pretty sincere and they sound pretty earnest and they have all the details of their story put together. So it it may actually be that they're telling the truth. Whereas Mr. Scott, when he took the stand in his own defense, he just, he seemed a little bit too slick, a little too, too self-confident. And people started to think, well, you know, his story seems a little bit too rehearsed and maybe he's not telling the truth. So maybe there is a difference between these two guys on one on one hand and Mr. Scott on the other. And it's interesting because you also talk in the book about white people's perceptions of of black people at the time and you talk about how on the part of white American white supremacists expectations were low so it didn't take much to for a black person to come across as impressive, but there was a very narrow line. They couldn't be too impressive or they were deemed what? Well, that is true. And if you go back and read the newspaper coverage, just the language is so so patronizing and offensive, it's, it's hard to even, even quote it these days. But um, when the reporters said that Adams, Adams and Scott sounded sympathetic and credible, what they meant was, well, these two black guys are so simple-minded and and so forth. Well, they if they can keep their stories together, then they must be telling the truth. Whereas Mr. Stroud over here, he seems so clever and cocky and arrogant. So he's a just a stereotypical bad black guy. So he's probably lying. And um, it's I mean, it's, it's a horribly offensive way to way to characterize it. But uh, 
what I contend is in the book is that um, that was essentially what happened, was that Adams and Sawyer were, they sounded credible because they were credible and they were telling the truth, whereas Scott, who really was the murderer, was lying. Yeah, and you even get a little bit into uh, what his psychology might have been. You mention uh, psychopathy and narcissism. Mm -hmm. Well, Technically, of course, you know, more than 100 years after the fact, you can't make a definitive diagnosis. And I'm not a psychologist myself, so I wouldn't even try. But, uh, you know, in some cases, it's just not, it's not that hard to see it. I mean, it seems pretty clear that Henry Scott was, uh, I mean, he killed five people. He uh, shot them dead in cold blood. So what I, what I can see pretty clearly is that he was a uh, narcissistic personality and uh, probably a psychopath as well. Yeah. And so these two men, Sawyer and Adams, who seemed credible to the public and whose stories were consistent, they still wound up convicted of murder. How did that happen? Yes. Well, it it relates to simply the way the trials were organized at the time, because the trial was here in Wilmington, North Carolina in 1905, and the jurors were white males, and it was just the, the atmosphere at the time. Uh, I mean, the fact that they were found guilty, that was, that was predictable. And um, they were, of course, sentenced to death as a result of that, and the trial only lasted about four days. And what's, what's interesting is that, you know, immediately after they finished the trial of Adams and Sawyer, the judge called a re- recess for about 30 minutes. Then he brought, back, brought court back into session, and he started the, the trial of Henry Scott, put 12 more jurors in the, uh, in the jury box, and then Adams and Sawyer became the prosecution witnesses for the government against Mr. Scott, even though the prosecution had just won death sentences against them about an hour beforehand. So the trials were to, <coughs> to, uh, to put it simply, they were a rushed affair. It's hard to imagine how difficult that must have been for those two men. Yes. Who were probably innocent. Yes. To sit there and testify mm-hmm. knowing that they were going to hang. No doubt they thought they were doomed at the time, but that's not the way it turned out in the end. It is not, although it is the way it turned out with Henry Scott. Yes. So do we know anything about what happened to the remains of Henry Scott? Yes. Uh, well, he was he was hanged as he was sentenced to death, and uh, he is... Um, all we know after that is that his, uh, his body was transported to the med- medical school up at uh, University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And uh, that was the, the end of him, as far as we know. And so after these two men, these other two men, were unfairly convicted of murder, mm-hmm. where did they go? Right. They, well, they stayed, in the, um, they stayed in the Wilmington jail for the time being while... Uh, there was while the appeal process was being worked out. I mean, there was some question at first whether anyone would even represent them on appeal. But as it turned out, their attorney, who represented them at trial, he stuck with them and he took the case to the Supreme Court. Now, with the help of George Roundtree, who then entered into the case, and they did not win in front of the Supreme Court. Unfortunately, uh, they tried to raise raise what issues that they could, but the rules were simply different back then, and the Supreme Court wasn't listening to you know, issues about, uh, you know, due process and uh, fairness of um, uh, adequacy of trial counsel and that type of thing. So they did not, they didn't prevail at, at the Supreme Court, 
but some of those same people in Wilmington who were sympathetic to them, they took the case to Theodore Roosevelt, and they filed a clemency petition and got that in front of him, again, with the help of the British Embassy, and Theodore Roosevelt actually commuted their sentences from death to life imprisonment. That is okay so so he commuted their sentences yes but this is also incredible that so much effort was put into the cause of these two men and you say in the book uh, Theodore Roosevelt said you include this quotation Teutonic and English blood is the source of American greatness our American Republic with all its faults is together with England the fine flower of centuries of self-discipline and experience in free government by the English-speaking branch of the white race, end quote. What did that outrageous white supremacy mean then for Sawyer and Adams? Well, you're correct. I mean, Theodore Roosevelt had never been known as being particularly sympathetic towards African-Americans or racial minorities of any kind. So again, it really is it really is a stunner. It really is a shock that in this particular case, he was persuaded to commute the sentences of these two black men who had been convicted of murdering four white men. And really, the only, the only thing that I can attribute it to is the fact that um, Roosevelt, like so many of these folks in Wilmington, became convinced that they they really were not guilty of what they had been accused of doing. And he commuted their sentences because a lot of folks were recommending it and because it was, to put it simply, the right thing to do. You're listening to Coastline. With us today, Charles Oldham. He's the author of Ship of Blood, Mutiny and Slaughter aboard the Harry A. Burwind and the Quest for Justice. It's published by Beach Glass Books. There's also, I mean, just to go back to Roosevelt's sort of um, incredible white supremacist outlook, you you write about, well, the Buffalo Soldiers. Can, mm-hmm. can you just tell us briefly what that is? Right about the same time in 1905-1906 when this case was reaching Roosevelt's desk, there had been another another particularly nasty case, which is which is much better known, uh, involving some uh, U.S. troops known as the Buffalo Soldiers. They were African American guys who had been stationed in uh, Brownsville, Texas, and they had been accused of taking part in a riot in Brownsville, where some a number of white folks in the area had been injured or killed, and. These these guys had been drummed out of the service, lost their lost their pension rights and that type of thing, even though it was very very questionable questionable about whether they really had taken part in the in the disturbance. And Roosevelt, unfortunately, he he signed off on the um, the um, their expulsion from the their discharges from the from the service. Dishonorable discharges. Yes, very dishonorable. And uh, that has, you know, people have recognized that for a long time as a, as a blot on uh, Roosevelt's record as far as race is concerned. He was, um, he had not been known to be sympathetic towards blacks at all. And yet, j- it was only just a couple months after that when the case of Adams and Sawyer reached Roosevelt, and he, he acted differently. Maybe because this case had not been as highly publicized as the Brownsville one, or maybe because in in this case from Wilmington, it was the facts were 
more more clear cut clear cut for him, and he recognized that they really had been wrongfully convicted. Yeah, and and this is the part that is sort of hard for me to understand. Recognizing they're wrongfully convicted, they're not exonerated. True. At this point, not yet. They're just okay. You're not going to die, but we're going to send you to probably one of the worst prisons we can find. Yes, and they did. They were sent to the uh, Atlanta Federal Penitentiary, which was a uh, a notorious prison at the time. And uh, at this point, they were sent. They were serving life prison terms, and we're probably thinking, well, we're going to be here in this uh, in this hellhole for the rest of our lives. Yeah, yeah. What were some of the elements of that prison that you were able to kind of discover during your research process? What well, made it such a hellhole? Well, it was certainly not a place where you'd want to be. It was a manual labor prison, and the, uh, the inmates who were there, they were typically uh, sent out to do, do contract work on um, and farms and uh, doing railroad construction, that type of thing. Uh, the sentence, literally, it read, uh, life imprisonment at hard labor. And, I mean, that's what it amounted to. So their, their existence at the time could not have been comfortable at all. But they didn't give up. No, they didn't. It wasn't the end of the story for them. Amazingly enough, that was not the end, and it goes, it goes on. Yeah. So, so Henry Scott, the, the person who was widely believed to be the instigator of all of this, has been hanged. He was convicted as well and hanged. What was the explanation then for those who believed that Sawyer and Adams were innocent, as you do? Mm-hmm. What's, what's the explanation for why they couldn't subdue Henry Scott on his murderous rampage aboard the Harry A. Burwind? Well, you have to have to sort of visualize the sort of the the setting of where it all happened, and it was on, on board a uh, sailing vessel, which was about uh, about two hundred feet long. So it was not a, not a small boat; it was a full size um, commercial vessel. And this uh, Henry Scott, as Adams and Sawyer told it, they claimed that uh, Scott smuggled a couple of pistols on board, and they had no idea that he was planning to do any of this. But totally by surprise, one morning, he pulled out these guns and he started shooting and he uh, roamed around the vessel one by one, hunting down each of the officers, shooting them in turn and throwing their bodies overboard. And Adams and Sawyer maintained that they had no guns. This was all completely a surprise to them. And so while Scott was armed and you know holding guns on them and telling them, look, you have to do what I, what I tell you or I'm going to shoot you too, they just had to play along until they could seize an opportune moment and uh, tackle Scott and take his guns away from him. Yeah, it just – but in the meantime, he had time to kill yes. all of the ship's officers and toss their bodies overboard by himself? Yes. And it sounded a little bit um, – that sounded a little bit suspicious at first. Um, you know, a lot of people wondered when they – when they were first brought ashore and when they first started telling their stories and the media started reporting it, a lot of people thought, well, you know, we've got these, these three black guys and four white officers who were killed. You know, surely all three of the black guys must have been, been aware of it somehow. That was the assumption at first. But when they thought about it a little bit more and listened 
In more detail, they change their minds. You're listening to Coastline. It's an exploration of a little-known criminal trial from 1905. Author Charles Oldham is with us today. His book, Ship of Blood, still ahead what the author himself has learned about white supremacy. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. In 1905, three black sailors were accused of murdering four white ships officers. But after the 1898 coup d'etat in Wilmington, perpetrated by the white power structure to reestablish white supremacy and eliminate any vestiges of black power or wealth, and amid the Jim Crow era, could these men get a fair trial? Charles Oldham has written a book about the case called Ship of Blood. And Charles Oldham, just before we went to break, you were explaining that uh, they had gotten their death sentences, the two widely considered to be innocent and considered to be innocent by you as well, had gotten their death sentences commuted to life in prison. So they went to a hellhole in Atlanta. But that wasn't the end of the story for them. Remarkably enough, that was not the end of the story. And it was they they remained in the prison in Atlanta for about about five years until uh, 1911, and I wasn't entirely clear on how this came about, but it was in 19, 1910 1911 when this case came to the attention of a fellow named uh, Henry Warner, who was a uh, a well known British stage actor at the time, and Mr. Warner had uh, had taken an interest in prison reform. And he had stated publicly that he was going to use some of his, some of his money, some of the proceeds he had earned from his stage performances, that he was going to assist uh, prisoners who claimed that they had been wrongly convicted. And somehow Adams and Sawyer in prison, they heard about this, and they reached out to Mr. Warner. And Mr. Warner, remarkably enough, he took it upon himself. He got his personal attorney to travel down to Atlanta and travel to Wilmington and investigate the case. And this is this Warner guy. This is Mr. Gower in It's a Wonderful Life. Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah. Uh, Amazingly enough, this was in 1911. And more than 30 years later, um, after Mr. Warner had he had been a stage actor for many years and then he transitioned into into um, film. He was the actor who played Mr. Gower, the the drunken uh, pharmacist in uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah. And so. So he got involved, and that got some momentum going again. Eventually, the next president, yep. Taft. Yeah, William Howard was, Taft was uh, was the president by this time. And again, some of the same folks who had uh, been influential in the first clemency petition, uh, Mr. Warner approached them again through his attorney, and they prepared a second clemency petition. And this time we know that... Uh, the British Embassy was even more deeply involved because uh, James Bryce, the British ambassador at the time, was a good friend of President Taft. And he got behind it. And at that point, President Taft uh, issued a second commutation of their sentences. And what he did, 
he didn't exonerate them, strictly speaking. Uh, for the record, they, they remained convicted murderers. But what he did was he just commuted their sentences to time served, which meant that after serving more than six years in the Atlanta penitentiary, they were released from prison. Right, which, which gave them their freedom, but it wasn't really justice. Well, you can't say it was really justice because uh, you know, the convictions stood. And uh, President Taft, when he, when he wrote out the commutation, he, he went to great pains to say, well, I'm not exonerating them. I'm not saying that they were <clears throat> that they're wrongly convicted. But given the circumstances, their involvement in the crime was probably less than was thought originally. And so it just seems like the right thing to do to release them from prison at this point. Why? This is, it's still so hard for me to grasp. I mean, this is a really interesting and entertaining read. And it raises so many questions that obviously you can speculate about based on the research that you did at the time. But, you know, no one can really answer. This case is such an anomaly in, in this context of 1898 recently happening and the disenfranchisement amendment being written into the state constitution which essentially, you know, was heralded the Jim Crow era. The, the white supremacy that was everywhere. How, how could these important, influential white men come to care about the innocence of these two black men? Why did they care when they had gone to such efforts to exterminate any trace of black wealth or power in Wilmington. Well, I'm going to put a, a slightly cynical interpretation on it at this point. You know, I, I'm, uh, <clears throat> I don't want to assume that they did it entirely out of altruistic purposes, although I think they probably did recognize that it was the proper thing to do after recognizing that these two guys probably were not involved in the murderers. But uh, it may be that, um, you know, by 1905 and 1906, these folks in Wilmington, they had, as you said, they had completely taken control of the local economy and the local government. By that point, they really had nothing to lose. And I think that maybe maybe by that time, they felt comfortable you know, exercising a little bit of mercy, a little bit of uh, what you might call noblesse oblige. And signing a, signing a clemency petition was maybe a fairly convenient way of saying, well, you see, we're not so bad. You know, we can be there can be justice here, and we can we can exercise mercy when we feel like it. So it might have been part then of an interest in making Wilmington not appear quite so racist as I, it actually was. I suspect that might have been part of their part of their calculus. But uh, of course, the fact remains that um, you know they didn't have to do anything, and what the way that this case turned out was the result of you know six to seven years of pretty hard work on the part of a lot of completely disinterested white people who had nothing to gain one way or the other and a completely surprising outcome in the end. So it's, it's hard, to, hard to minimize that. What do you think the value is of bringing forth some of these stories that aren't in the regular rotation mm -hmm. of our understanding of North Carolina history? Well, I wrote the book primarily because it's a it's a positive story. You know, I'm I'm very happy that we've learned so much 
about the Wilmington insurrection over the past 20 or 25 years. Uh, because, because it's a positive story about white people? Well, it's this particular, I mean, the case of the Burwind is, you know, I think it's a, it's an example of how, how things can go right, even in the worst of times. Uh, we've learned a lot about the really horrible events of 1898 and everything that followed after that. And that's, it's good that we have because that whole story was neglected for so long. Uh, and in writing this story, uh, I wanted to get the point across that even in the very worst of times, it was possible for you know, these influential white people who had done some really nasty things in the past, they were able to partially redeem themselves at least and show that justice could prevail even in days like that. And it shows that you know, Wilmington is not this uh, irredeemably racist hellscape that some, some folks might be inclined to characterize it as. But they didn't get justice. No. I mean, they eventually got their freedom, but it wasn't justice. They spent time in prison. Yeah. I mean, serious time in prison. Well, that's true. I mean, you can't, you can't characterize it as perfect justice. But, I mean, given the circumstances, it's considering what came very close to happening to them. It was really a, it was a miraculous turn of events in a way. And as where the 1898 coup d'etat is concerned, we've had several accounts now mm -hmm. of, of that. But there is still research going on and there is still a great deal of work to find out details, filling in the blanks that we haven't been able to fill in. I mean, the, the story there has begun, but the story certainly isn't finished. Oh, that's true. Definitely. Um, and, you know, I commend everyone who is you know, putting in the time to talk with, say, descendants of folks who were affected by that. Um, there were so many African-Americans in particular who, who fled the city at the time and they never came back. Or if they did, it was many years later. And uh, those, you know, those family histories are very, very important. And uh, a lot of them have yet to be, yet to be fully explored. And so. you, you also note in your book that it, that African American families often don't have the same kind of strong historical records that white families do. And why is that? Well, it's uh, primarily because. Uh, the, the record keeping has been a lot more meticulous uh, when it comes to white history just because, um, unfortunately, this is just the residual effect of uh, racism in general. But um, we haven't been as careful about keeping the records when it comes to African-American families, which is, which is regretful. I mean, I was surprised, for one thing, that more, more people here in Wilmington, I mean, especially in the African-American community, had never heard of the Berwyn case at all. Uh, despite the fact that it was such a such a stunning legal victory at the time and such a remarkable turn of events, but really, I found very few people, black or white, here in Wilmington who had even heard about it previously, and that was that was a surprise. You're listening to Coastline. With us today, Charles Oldham. He's the author of Ship of Blood: Mutiny and Slaughter Aboard the Harry A. Burwind and the Quest for Justice. The book is published by Beach Glass Books. So as we continue to research and excavate the details of some of these historic moments in North Carolina and in Wilmington, we know that there has been resistance on the part of white people to 
to really hauling out everything we know that happened. And it's it's taken a great deal of work against that resistance, which is less, but it's there are vestiges of it still there. What is that white resistance to just telling the truth? What is that? Is it people afraid of finding out that their own ancestors or relatives are somehow sullied? Or what is it? Well, it's just a, I think it's a natural tendency just to avoid um, avoid unpleasant facts, you know, especially when it's attached to your own family name, for example. And um, yeah, this is not a not an indictment of any particular person, but um, you know, walking around Wilmington today, you see all the all the growth, all the development, how things have changed so much, you know, for the better over the past uh, definitely over the past twenty five years, but even even before then. Uh, there's a there might be a fear on the part of some folks that um, you know revealing too much is going to going to upset the the current trajectory. You know, they, we often talk about how the the arc of justice bends arc of history <clears throat> bends toward justice and so forth. But um, it's I think there's just a natural resistance to um, do anything that might upset the status quo. And I, I have a feeling that's maybe that's what a lot of people feel if, they, if they're reluctant to, to talk about it. You mentioned um, descendants of victims of 1898. And of course, uh, one of the most well-known victims was Alex Manley, who was the owner and publisher of the Daily Record, widely considered to be the only daily black-owned newspaper, uh, certainly in, in North Carolina, possibly in the country. And... We actually spoke with some of his descendants on on this show, Kieran and Priscilla Hale. Kieran is the great-great-grandson of Alex Manley. And then we met Layla Hale, who is also a descendant of Alex Manley. Your middle name is Manley. Mm-hmm. Are you related? No, I'm, I'm not a blood rel- relative. There's not a blood connection that I'm aware of. Although I will tell you, uh, my name is Charles Manley Oldham. Uh, that is the source of the name, uh, and this goes back to uh, the middle, uh, mid mid eighteen hundreds. But I guess it would have been my, I think it was my great great grandfather who was named for Charles Manley, who was the governor of North Carolina back at the time. And as you probably know, he, uh, Governor Man- Manley, essentially had. Two families, and one of them was with um, the women who were enslaved by his family at the time. So, right, mm-hmm. right, and Alex Manley is considered to be a descendant. Yes, of of that family line. Mm-hmm. So you're not part of that family line. You were just named after the governor, correct? Or your your great great grandfather. It would have been my great great grandfather who was named after him, but there's not a there's not a blood connection that I'm aware of. Mm-hmm. And so, so I I certainly understand um, not wanting to dwell on what feels like negative stories. But is there a case to be made for excavating all of it 
so that we can all together get it out there and then talk about how to make one another whole. Because one of the things you said in the book, and I take issue with this, is that there has been a full reckoning of 1898. And we're still looking at harm. We're still looking at people alive today who experience harm as a result of some of the things the white supremacists did and and continue to do, including loss of, of generational wealth and differences in health outcomes, differences in the ability to earn income. I mean, it just, it, it permeates one's whole life when you're talking about those kinds of crimes being perpetrated upon mm-hmm. your family. So where does that leave us as white people? Well, I mean, we're the fact that we're having this conversation right now, uh, we're talking about how much has already been learned and how much has been discovered. And you and I, I think, are both on the same page when we talk about the, the process is continuing, as it should. I certainly would not dispute that in any way. And, I mean, the, the inequalities that, uh, that continue to exist, I mean, I don't think anyone seriously disputes that. That is a... Uh, you know, that's that's really the political question of our, our of our times. I mean, how do we how do we address it, and how do we how do we make proper recompense? And that's that's going to be a very long, long conversation and discussion. But, uh, I'm not sure exactly where that goes. And that is this edition of Coastline. Charles Oldham, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you for having me. The book is Ship of Blood, published by Beach Glass Books. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Furnell engineered this episode. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. You can find the episode at whqr.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.